Hey folks, this is Abel James, and thanks so much for joining us on Fat Burning Man, where we talk about real food and real results. Why do we crave junk food? We've all fallen into the trap. You get hungry, and before you even think about it, you're elbow deep in a bag of Doritos. To make it worse, it almost feels like our brain rewards us for eating junk. You're about to learn why and what you can do to make cravings a thing of the past. Today we're here with neurobiologist and author of The Hungry Brain, Stefan Guillenet, Ph.D. Stefan offers a fascinating look at how evolution predisposes us to crave calorie-dense food. Before we get to the show, I'd like to address an unfortunate fact. By a large majority, most people gain weight during the holidays. Even one pound of fat a year can add up quickly and increase risk of heart disease and type 2 diabetes, the leading causes of death in America. And a lot of that is preventable. The question I get most this time of year is, how can I enjoy my holiday feasts and treats without packing on the pounds? After years of staying lean or even losing fat during the holidays, I believe the trick to surviving temptation is to get one step ahead of your cravings with clean, tasty, and nutrient-dense meals. To help you stay lean and mean and feast well during the holidays, we've slashed the price on our best-selling e-cookbook, The Fat-Burning Chef. You'll get over 200 quick and easy recipes like blueberry cheesecake, smoked pork shoulder drizzled in homemade barbecue sauce, and much more. You can make these quick and easy meals in 20 minutes or less. Everything is gluten-free, wild-approved, and no counting needed. 100% real food. And when you get Fat-Burning Chef soon, you'll even get our Wild Holiday Feasts cookbook as an added bonus. All you have to do to get your discount and bonuses is go to fatburningchef.com. Once again, from any device, including the one you're listening on right now, just type in fatburningchef.com and get our Wild Feast ebook for free as an added bonus. All right, on to the show with Stefan. You're about to learn why we eat nearly 300 more calories per day than we did 40 years ago, how to turn off your instinctual craving for unhealthy food, how to reshape your food environment, one simple trick to make sure you don't overeat nuts, and much more. Let's hang out with Stefan. All right, folks, Stefan Guillenet is an obesity researcher and neurobiologist who places cutting-edge biomedical research into an ancestral health framework. His research spans neurodegenerative disease, aging, nutrition, and obesity, but in recent years has been focused primarily on the neurobiology of eating behavior and obesity. He holds a PhD in neurobiology from the University of Washington, and his peer-reviewed research has been cited over 1,200 times by his scientific colleagues. His upcoming book, The Hungry Brain, will explain the neurobiology of why we often overeat despite our best intentions. Stefan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Good to be here, Abel. So I've been following your work for a very long time now, and I'm stoked to have you on this show because you've been putting out your research and your musings and thoughts on your blog for a long time now, and uh, you're very much respected in this space. But I'd love to get you just to kind of like tackle this question at the beginning. Why do we overeat and what can we do about it? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of reasons why we overeat. And I think that basically, you know, to try to boil it down to one thing, I would say that we evolved in a situation where it was difficult to get calories. And so we evolved a lot of systems to try to increase our calorie intake to make sure that we could sustain the intake that we needed to live a really rigorous lifestyle. And those brain systems are still in place today. A lot of that is hardwired into our brains. And so 
now we're in a situation where we don't live that rigorous lifestyle anymore, but we have more opportunities than ever to satisfy those, those hardwired desires. So I think that right there, just to encapsulate the, the core idea, I think is, is the primary reason why we overeat. But that expresses itself in many different ways, including our food environment, like easy availability of food, reduced costs of food, and not just the financial costs, but the convenience of food, and that's part of the food environment, as well as changes in food composition. Our, um, the food that we eat has increasingly come to mirror the innate uh, preferences of the human brain. Basically, we've engineered it to be what we want it to be over time. We've gained, through technology and affluence, we've gained increasing control over the properties of food so that we get what we want out of food. And when the brain sees food that it wants, it tends to eat more of it than a food it isn't that crazy about. So I think that, you know, to, again, to kind of put what can we do about it into a nutshell, I guess the best way I can put it is that there are a lot of aspects, there are a lot of different facets to that question, but yeah, we'll dig in. <laughs> you you don't want to have to rely on willpower every day, I guess. I guess right. would be one core theme there. You don't want to have to put yourself in a situation where you have to say no to something that you really, really want. And so how do you do that? I think really since our eating behavior to a large extent is influenced and governed by these intuitive, instinctive circuits in the brain that we inherited from our distant ancestors, the key goal is to manage those circuits in such a way that your instincts and your impulses are aligned with your conscious goals of managing your weight and your health in a constructive direction. So things like controlling your food environment, controlling your, your food composition, your sleep, your stress, that sort of stuff. So that those circuits are working in a way that is supporting your goals rather than opposing your goals. Right. So essentially what it seems like to me anyway, when you go out into the modern world, it's the equivalent of kind of like staring a piece of chocolate birthday cake in the face all day long, every day. You just have all this hyper palatable food that our brains wouldn't have adapted to see. Or I, I guess I should correct myself. We see way too much of now. It's, it's like very emotional for us to try to be pulled in all these different directions to all this food that really wouldn't have existed uh, in the past. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the difference between a hunter-gatherer food environment and the modern food environment is kind of like the difference in the drug environment between what most people experience and having a crack pipe strapped to your face. Right. Like, if it's strapped to your face, you're going to be more likely to take a hit off of it. That's just human nature. Yeah. Yeah, and we're outmatched. So what do you do about that mismatch yourself? Like, how do you manage your daily life? I know that I've gone through kind of experiments to see how I felt and I've journaled depending on how, how I felt. But uh, we, we spent a lot of time uh, kind of living in the middle of nowhere in the past couple of years, traveling around. And we noticed that our food cravings started to disappear. Like we didn't, we didn't really hmm. think about food all that much and hunger meant a different thing unless we were, you know, hauling our RV from state to state and you see hamburger fries, <laughs> chicken nuggets, shakes, desserts, you know, just like all the billboards. 
in your line of vision. And I noticed like it, I didn't think I wanted a hamburger, but all of a sudden I really want a hamburger and now I want some fries and now I want this other stuff. How do you combat that? Yeah, I mean, you're really striking at the heart of what it is to be motivated as a human being um, and the broader concept of reward, which is the, the brain process that determines your motivation and your pleasure and your learning about your intuitive learning about things. So basically the way reward works is if there's something really good, something that the brain views as valuable, such as a really, you know, calorie dense food, hamburger, fries or whatever, when you eat that food, it goes into your gut and there are all kinds of sensors in your gut that detect the properties of that food and send that information to your brain. And it tells your brain all the awesome stuff that's in that food with, and that's how your brain interprets it as being really awesome because it's wired to do that yeah. because if you were a hunter gatherer, a hamburger and fries would be like the best thing you ever ate. You just won. <laughs> you just won. Yeah. And I mean, seriously, reproductively because yeah. uh, we were shaped by the process of natural selection and that's all about reproductive success. And when you look at hunter gatherers, one of the main determinants of re reproductive success is how many calories they're bringing in. So. Mm -hmm. The brain is very, very strongly wired to care about calories. So, so it has ways to detect it. And when it detects that, that you've achieved a goal, whether it's really good food, whether it's sex, whether it's, you know, getting warm when you're cold, anything that the brain views as valuable, getting a raise, all of the circumstances that were associated with you getting that goal, it notes them and it makes those it turns those into motivational triggers that triggers your motivation in the future. So if you ate a really good hamburger and fries, the next time you see a picture of it or you smell the fries or smell the hamburger or whatever, any sensory cue that you experience that reminds your brain of that awesome thing happening last time, mm -hmm. that triggers your intuitive motivation, which is what we call in the context of food, we call it craving. And if that goes to an extreme, we call it addiction. Mm -hmm. So what you are experiencing is a previously reinforced cue um, triggering a motivation or triggering craving. Yeah. And so this is, you know, this is this is fundamentally in the broadest sense, it's a good thing. It's it's what allows us to learn how to achieve our goals over the course of our lives. And in the context of our ancestors, even even the, the food cravings would have been really good because those calorie dense foods are the ones that they needed to to survive and compete. Yeah. But today we're in a bit of a different environment where eating too much is a lot more of a threat than eating too little, at least in the affluent, you know, United sure. States and Western Europe. So it's a very different scenario. So those same impulses that were good back then now are literally killing us. Uh, at least many of us. Yeah. But another thing that happens, and and you know, there, there's a lot of research on how this stuff works in the brain, how it works um, psychologically, mm -hmm. and one of the things that researchers have figured out is that if you don't expose yourself to the reward, so let's say you don't eat a hamburger and fries for a year, its power over you gradually diminishes. Right. So the brain basically forgets slowly, very slowly over time, the intuitive systems that govern your cravings and motivation gradually forget how awesome it was to eat the hamburger and fries. Yeah. 
and the degree of motivation that the cues that predict those foods um, trigger in you diminishes over time as well. So you don't eat the hamburger and fries for a year. You see that billboard, you smell the fries. It's going to trigger a lower level of motivation in you than it would than it would if you ate the same thing just a few days ago. Yeah, that is, and that's fascinating. It brings another thing to mind, which is when uh, now if I walked into a McDonald's, which normally you wouldn't see that happen, but um, the smell is repugnant, right? It smells like <laughs> chemicals. It smells, and if I were to taste that food, because occasionally I do eat something that's that's not one hundred percent awesome for me. Uh, it, it, it begins to taste like chemicals. And I just realized that, you know, it's less about the smell or the taste itself. It's more about what you're attaching to that, what your brain is reminded of, right? And and so over the course of time, you, you start to forget that. And all of a sudden, the things that were chemicals the whole time, those connections aren't there anymore. And all of a sudden, it's it's gross. That's where we want people to get, right? We want them to be turned off by this food that seems hyperpalatable or, or would seem to be delicious or, or that in the advertising messages kind of like trains you to think is delicious, right? If you stay away from that long enough, you let those connections kind of disappear, right? Or, or maybe not completely, but at least they're diminished. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to acknowledge that on a, on a very kind of basic level to the brain, those foods are delicious. They have a lot of the things that the brain wants. Yeah. They're really dense in calories. They're easy to digest. I'm not saying they're good for you today, and maybe not ever. Maybe they never were, um, but they do have fundamentally properties that the brain seeks. Right. But you know, first. So first of all, if you don't eat them regularly, they don't have the same kind of pull on you. But second of all, uh, we're learning more and more that there are other things that can affect those cravings and those intuitions. And some of them come from the, you know, higher order, more rational parts of our mind. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a perception of a food as unhealthy, like if you associate a hamburger with something that's going to make you have a heart attack and kill you, it, it may not, not just make you less likely to eat it, but even less likely to crave it right. and to want it and enjoy it. Yeah. So, um, I'm trying to think there was an example of this recently. I can't remember, but I know it's it's really common in the um, you see this a lot in the vegetarian and vegan communities. They um, one of the kind of tools that they use to discourage eating animal foods is to associate them with these really gross things. Yeah. So images of animal abuse and parasites and people having heart attacks and atherosclerosis and like really gross things to create a sort of like visceral and moral revulsion against eating those foods. And that kind of, again, it, it not only makes people not want to eat them on a rational level, it actually, it, it actually affects their intrinsic motivation to eat those foods. So mm -hmm. I think that's part of it too. Like I don't enjoy soda anymore. I, when I was younger, I liked soda. Yeah. Soda is just, it's kind of gross. To me now it's too sweet but yeah. you know i'm no saint i'm not i don't claim sure. to be a saint i still love pizza i still yeah. love ice cream of course french fries are amazing so i i'm not trying to say that i'm some kind of saint and i do eat those foods sometimes yeah i'm also not trying to say that i abstain but i don't make them a regular part of my food environment because i know 
that I'm vulnerable to overeating those foods. Now, how effective is that association, though? Because, uh, you know, if you look at, at cigarettes, for example, or tobacco uh, in other countries, I remember the first time I saw this in a store, I was, I was really taken aback by it. They show all those pictures of, I think it was in Canada when I saw this, you mm-hmm. know, the, the, the pictures of lung cancer and tumors and stuff like that on the packaging itself. But if I recall, and I'm just going off the top of my head, I, I, I'm not sure that that was all that effective uh, in terms of changing purchasing decisions for people who are already addicted? Yeah, uh, that's a really good question. And I don't actually have any data that I can fall back on, um, on the specifically on the effectiveness of, of that. It's, it, it's called counter marketing, mm-hmm. but I suspect it's at least somewhat effective. And the it was on I me. I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think it probably works on somebody. And the reason yeah. that I say that is that it's the opposite of regular marketing, which is trying to associate um, a product with positive feelings. So, Happy meal, right? Yeah, or, or Coca-Cola. Like, how mm-hmm. do you get somebody to buy sugar water? Like, yeah. it's the same product <laughs> you've had on the market for the last 100 years. It's just right. sugar water. So how do you get people to buy it? You have these commercials that have, like, you know, young good-looking, diverse, hip people doing fun things and enjoying life and, and you know, just cutting loose. And it takes those good feelings that it generates and it associates that with the sugar water and that increases your positive feelings about it, your likelihood of buying it. It's basically, a, it's, it's creating a form of a reward mm-hmm. in that ad. Because, I mean, you can't really, like, there's different ways of advertising. One way of advertising, like if you make a really good car that's really good quality, you can talk about how good quality it is. But, yeah. you know, Coca-Cola has pretty limited <laughs> options there. It's sugar water. Right. They don't say, even have cocaine in it anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's true. There's not even cocaine. So what's what's the argument based on? It's like this is better than, you know, Pepsi is sugar water. Right. It's I don't think I could even tell the difference in a, you know, blinded sure. taste test. But so what do they do? They have limited options. They try to create a reward association by associating their product with positive feelings, things that we already like. And it really works. And I think the evidence is to be found in the amount of money that companies spend on that kind of advertising. It's immense. Food advertising alone in the United States is over $10 billion a year. Wow. And yeah, compare that to about a billion dollars that goes into uh, funding for obesity research. Mm-hmm. So basically, there's a lot more money that's going into the campaign to try to convince you to eat than the campaign to deal with the the problems uh, caused by overeating. Yeah. So anyway, that's that's a long-winded way of saying that. I think that. The, the flip side of that is counter marketing where you try to associate bad things with the particular product like, mm-hmm. you know, images of lung cancer and whatever. And again, I don't have any data to support this, but I suspect it works. Um, the, the fundamental principle is sound and the flip side of it works. But what I will say is that um, so counter marketing is just one part of this effort, but there's been a really broad effort to reduce cigarette smoking in the United States. Over, I, I don't know exactly how long it's been, 30 or 40 years. And this was funded by massive, massive tobacco settlements, mm-hmm. billions and billions of dollars. And 
cigarette consumption in the U.S. has gone down by 70 percent. That's per amazing. Capita. Yeah. So and it's had profound, profound public health consequences. Heart attack mortality is going way down. Lung mm-hmm. cancer mortality is going way down. And that has, you know, it's not exclusively to do with cigarettes, but it's a big part of it. Yeah. And uh, so it, it was part of a broad, broader strategy that was extremely successful. What about obesity, though? What do we do there? Because as as that piece has gotten better with, with tobacco, and that's obvious to pretty much anyone. It's, 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 you know, even rare to see people smoking outside these days in, in a lot of cases and in, in a lot of locations. But it's quite easy to overeat and, and eat the wrong foods almost anywhere. Uh, in fact, everywhere is kind of set up for that. And you mentioned, uh, and I totally agree, that setting up your environment to make the right choices, especially as it relates to food, is extremely important. So uh, how, do you, how do you start to do that in a world that's really seen, it seems to be pitted against us, especially as it relates to food? Yeah, I mean, obesity is, a, is in a lot of ways a much tougher problem than cigarettes because with cigarettes, you can really point your finger at one thing yeah. that's the culprit and you can say, this is not a necessary element of human existence. So like if cigarettes were to disappear off the face of the planet tomorrow, you know, we'd all be okay. Right. If food was to disappear <laughs> off the face of the planet, we'd have problems. Yeah. So in obesity, you have to split nutritional hairs and that's a yeah. lot harder right. than condemning a drug wholesale. Mm-hmm. And, um, the other problem is that we're, we're talking about a lot of calories here. We're talking about about something like 220 calories a day that we're eating more than we used to back yeah. in the 1970s. Right. So every every day, the average American is eating some 220 calories more than they would have back in the 70s. That's the, the, the magnitude of the, the difference in our calorie intake that's accounting for this obesity epidemic. Yeah. But what that really means is even more challenging because not everyone overeats. Mm-hmm. Some people are, for whatever reason, either just genetics or the way they live their lives are more, they don't overeat. And so what we're really seeing is that people who are overeating are overeating by 300 plus calories a day. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really a, a difficult problem. I mean, how do you get someone to eat 300 fewer calories a day or burn 300 more calories a day? Um, so I think that the, the, and what I'm driving at here is that, you know, there, there have been a lot of anti-obesity efforts in the United States already at this point and especially in other countries. Yeah. But they've been kind of half-hearted, like we're really not using the policy tools that are gonna be the most effective at solving the problem. And there are reasons for this, I mean, and I, and I respect people's reasons for not wanting things like food taxes, yeah. um, you know, taxation on sugar-sweetened beverages and calorie-dense foods and things like that. I respect that people have views on that that differ from, from mine, but mm-hmm. I, I mean, the reality is, if we want to do something about the problem, we're going to need to start using those tools. Mm-hmm. We're going to need to start reshaping the food environment. And the reason is that humans are not these purely rational, you know, agents that we kind of as- assume ourselves to be. 
it, to a large extent, we're reactive to mm-hmm. our environment and we're driven by our own instincts and impulses. Yeah. That's the reality that both psychology and neuroscience has been revealing to us to and an marketing has been taking degree. advantage of, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they play us like marionettes, honestly. <laughs> yeah. And and to an extent we do it to ourselves too, because really they're catering to our instincts. Yeah. We're the ones that created the, the demand for this fattening food. And then we we kill ourselves with it. But yeah, so I think I think it's gonna take big changes and I think it's gonna take changes that don't require people to exert, you know, iron willpower on a continual daily basis. Yeah. So it's gonna take structural changes to the food environment and to the environment in general that promotes healthier diet and lifestyle patterns where the default pattern of behavior is doing things that are healthy. So whether that involves food taxes, I think, I think food taxes are one of the more effective uh, potential instruments regulating food advertising. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and it, to a degree, it is regulated in the United States. There's industry self-regulation which is definitely a step in the right direction. But I mean, we shouldn't have any food advertising to kids in this country, like in my opinion. Okay, so I understand, you know, adults, you want to be able to choose your own path. You don't want people telling you what to do. But children are really, they can be obese before they have any choice in the matter. And I think that we have to give a lot of thought to how we're going to protect children from this fattening food environment so that we don't, literally handicap them before they even have a choice in the matter, you know, handicap them physiologically and and physically, you know, it's like, it's a huge, huge problem that our country is facing 17% of children are obese. And if you think about what that means, like if I think of that back at, you know, what I did when I was a kid, I was always running around, climbing up trees and doing all, you know, on the monkey bars. Yeah. And, you know, I, I respect these people and their families, but I think at the same time we have to see that there's a problem here with these kids not getting everything out of life that they could be getting. Right. And, and that predisposes them to so many problems later. So I think especially regulating how children are exposed to food and food cues is, is really, really critical. So those are just a couple of ideas, but I think there are a lot of other things to encouraging um, active transportation, mm-hmm. I think would be really great. Increasing infrastructure for walking and cycling. I know not everyone's going to take advantage of that, but yeah. if the infrastructure isn't there, people aren't going to do it. Yeah. Um, so those are just a few ideas for kind of like large scale things that can be done through, uh, through the government or um, other large scale organizations. And then of course, there are a lot of things we can do as individuals as well. Sure. Now, you mentioned that we're overeating by, you know, 300-ish calories a day or, or, or something like that. Or suffice it to say, we're overeating. Do you have a favorite hypothesis as to why that would be the case? Especially in, in the recent decades, we've seen that tick up. Uh, and it doesn't seem like it's going down. Yeah, so 
it comes back to the fact that our food environment and our food composition have gradually evolved to mirror our innate preferences. Okay. So the I'll, I'll start with convenience. If you go back 100 years in the United States, people were cooking almost all their own food in the home. Mm -hmm. They would go to the store, they would buy single ingredients, and then they would make their own food. And a lot of it, they were making really basic things, like they'd make their own bread. Yeah. Not all, not all families would do that, but a lot of families would make their own bread. And today that's really quite rare. And if you look at how food expenditures have changed, in the 1890s, we spent more than 90% of our food expenditures on food to be eaten at home, whereas today it's about 50-50. And a lot of food we're bringing home today is already pre-prepared. Yeah. And, and our reliance on fast food has increased ninefold over the last uh, 50 years. Yeah. Or, or expenditures, I should say. Mm -hmm. And basically what this revolves around is convenience. So as we've become more affluent and we can afford to eat at restaurants more, we can afford pre-prepared processed food more. Um, and as our time has gone down, and what I mean by that is now you ha typically have two working parents instead of one, so there's a lot less time available to prepare food. Mm -hmm. You have this massively increased demand and consumption of, of very, very convenient food that requires, it's all around us, it requires basically no effort to prepare and consume. And when something requires no effort, we, we know this from a lot of uh, experiments that have been done. Brian Wansink is, is one person who comes to mind. Um, the more convenient it is to eat a food, the more of it we're going to eat. That's yeah. just a very basic feature of, of human uh, intuitive economic behavior. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing, but also the type of food that we eat has changed. And again, it's come to mirror the innate preferences of the human brain. So the human brain is wired to look for certain properties in food. And I, and I really mean wired, hardwired, mm -hmm. um, to look for certain properties in food. And these are the things that people in every culture appreciates. Calorie density, fat, sugar, starch, and umami, which is that meaty mm -hmm. glutamate flavor that's in soy sauce and cooked meats and bone broth. Those are things that titillate the brain circuits that drive us to eat. And so those are things that were less available in the time of our distant ancestors. So, for example, I think, I think a really great example is glutamate. So, um, and this, again, is that meaty umami flavor that tastes really good. Originally, the place we got it was cooked meat. That's, that's the first place we got umami, and that's probably why we like it, is that it was associated with cooked meat. And we're talking about possibly hundreds of thousands of years ago, maybe longer yeah. ago than that, that we started eating that. So and long before that actually helped brain build brain. our brains, right? I think there was a huge reward for cooking our meat back then, or, or at least I would assume so. Yeah, I mean, cooked meat, it makes a whole lot of sense that we'd be very motivated by that. You cook meat and you increase the amount of calories and protein you can extract from it by digesting it by considerably. So, and you kill parasites. Yeah, it's cooking meat is a really great idea. And then, and then as technology proceeded, we developed 
bowls and things, and then we developed the ability to, to boil bones and make bone broth, and that's a richer source of glutamate. And then um, as technology continued to proceed, we learned how to make fish sauce and soy sauce. The ancient Romans used to make a sauce called garum mm -hmm. that's very similar to fish sauce 2,000 years ago. Um, that's very, very high in glutamate. And then this kind of technological process of increasingly concentrated glutamate culminated in 1908 when a Japanese researcher isolated pure monosodium glutamate. So basically we figured out over time how to isolate the active ingredient in things that taste meaty that our brains crave. Mm -hmm. And now we can use it in crystalline form and add it to whatever food we want. But the key point is that this active ingredient at this point is totally divorced from any sort of nutrition that it originally was associated with and originally pointed us toward. Yeah. And it's kind of the same concept as um, you think about cocaine, like the uh, traditional people in South America use the leaf of the coca plant as a mild stimulant and appetite suppressant. It's kind of like caffeine down there. You just chew on the leaves and it's a, it's a very mild drug that they use in a very constructive way. But if you purify out the active ingredient, the thing that makes your dopamine spike in your brain, mm -hmm. you get cocaine and now you have an addictive drug. Then if you further process that so that the compound crosses the blood brain barrier really easily, then you get crack cocaine, which is even more addictive. So basically what I'm trying to draw a parallel between here is this process of technological development where we've been able to purify the properties that um, specifically trigger those reward pathways in the brain. Yeah. So glutamate's one thing. If you look at added fat, that's another thing. So our total fat intake hasn't really changed that much over the last hundred years. It's gone up a little bit, but our added fat intake has increased quite a lot. Mm -hmm. So we can take things like soybean oil or butter or anything else and add it to foods that would ordinarily not contain a whole lot of fat and dramatically increase their their reward value to the brain. And sugar is another great example. Yeah. And I think sugar is very analogous in many ways to uh, glutamate or monosodium glutamate in the sense that we've really purified it down to the absolute active ingredient right. uh, in crystalline form. And we... Since 1822, our consumption of sugar has gone up something like 20-fold. So, and I'm talking about added sugar, not right. that doesn't include the sugar that's naturally found in fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. Although I'm sure our total sugar intake probably went up too. Yeah. So, I think those are some good examples of how, in addition to the convenience of our food changing and pervasiveness in in our personal environment the actual properties of food have changed in a way that make them more appealing to the brain and drive consumption to a greater degree. Yeah. So where does that leave you? How do you build your plate? What are you eating day in and day out? Or, or what's your strategy to combat all the things that you know are against us? Yeah. So, I mean, my, the main thing that I do is I control my food environment. Mm -hmm. um, so, I do a lot of things, but I think in terms of bang for my buck, that's probably number one. So yeah. if you walk into my kitchen, you're not going to see 
a bag of chips on the counter, you're not going to see any, anything tempting like that. You're not even going to see a bowl of salted nuts. What you're going to see is foods that a require a bit of effort to eat. So for example, I have a bag of peanuts in shells, Mm -hmm. unsalted. Mm -hmm. So they, if I want to eat those peanuts, I have to do a little bit of work to get to them. So A, you're going to see foods that require a little bit of work, not necessarily a lot of work. Yeah, that's enough, though, to really change your behavior, right? You can just take handfuls of those salted nuts as much as you want. But when you have to break them open, it's it slows it down to to a crawl. I do exactly the same thing. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and there's actually good research suggesting that it makes a huge difference. Even small effort barriers make a huge difference on uh, consumption. And second... I don't put things in my personal food environment that I find extremely tempting. So, yeah. you know, like I said, I, I love, you know, fries. I love ice cream. I love potato chips. Those are not things that I keep in my personal environment. They're not on my counter. They're not in my cupboard. They're not in my fridge. I cannot eat those things unless I go to the store. And that's a pretty substantial effort barrier. Yeah. But interestingly, not only, I mean, it's not just that it makes it harder to do it so you don't do it. It actually makes you want it less. If it's not even an option, you tend to have less of a craving for those foods. Right. If there's Ben and Jerry's in the fridge, your brain knows it's there. You can try to forget that, but you know it's there. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I know that my brain doesn't forget it, so right. I just don't. I don't bring those things <laughs> in. And fortunately, I'm I'm kind of the the chef and the and the food architect in our house, so I can control, you know, and and my wife goes along with it. Um, I can control those things. Yeah. So that's really important. The food environment. Um, in, in terms of the quality of the food, I try to eat food that is as unrefined as possible and um, is not particularly calorie dense and not overly palatable. So I like to eat well, but I tend to eat simple foods. Mm-hmm. So I grow a lot of my own food and I'll eat, I'll eat vegetables. I eat a lot of potatoes that I grow and I avoid... But, in, in the interest of eating less um, refined and calorie-dense foods, I don't use a, a whole lot of added fat. I do use some, but it's mostly extra virgin olive oil. And I, I basically use the minimum amount that uh, I need to make my food palatable yeah. and to satisfy my appetite. So you want it to taste good, but not like uber good, I have to stuff this down my face nonstop good. Yeah, and I think most people understand that distinction yeah i mean it's definitely there's a gray area and you can't you can't really draw a a line and say one food is and one isn't and it's it's individual but i think most people understand that concept there's certain foods certainly for myself that you know i can eat and i enjoy it but when i'm full i stop and there's other foods that i won't stop you know and so your potato how do you eat that normally I normally either eat it plain or I will have it plain and put whatever dish that I'm eating on top of it so if I make some kind of stew or soup I'll I'll throw I'll throw a potato under it but I don't usually put anything on the potato except 
mixing it with whatever else I'm eating. So that's a far cry than the chips you're talking about or the fries, right? It may, it may be the same food, but the way that yeah. you react to it is completely different. And the way that you fill up on it or don't, as the case may be, is completely different. I think that's a, that's a really good point. It's very, very different. And, you know, potatoes aren't, aren't especially calorie dense. Mm-hmm. It's, one, it's actually one of the most filling foods per unit calorie. So if you're just eating potato, that's compatible with, with good appetite regulation and, sure. and, and weight management. But if you're putting a huge amount of sour cream and butter and calorie-dense toppings on it, or if you're deep frying it into fries or chips, that's a whole other ballgame. Yeah. And so... Yeah, so I, I avoid doing that. Um, I just eat my potatoes plain with whatever else I'm eating. But I'll, I'll mix it up with, you know, sauce or whatever to, to make it go down a little easier. Yeah, and I think one of the things that you're touching on here is really important to, to point out. And that's that you don't want your food to be like, punch me in the face. This is the best thing ever. You really want to fill up on food. You want it to be nourishing. And you want to feel good 10 minutes, 10 hours, 10 days later. From eating it. And I think there's a, you know, we're trained for that reacting uh, to various food stimuli that we see out in our environment. And I think that's what, that's the critical step that most people need to take is to realizing, no, I'm not going to eat a, a hamburger and fries just because that's what's there. That's what I think tastes good right now. Uh, I want to eat the whole food that's going to fill me up so that I feel good and can get back to work or go to sleep, right? Because <laughs> so I can actually live my life. It's not going to get in the way. Yeah. And I think in the modern world, we're, it's tough because we're, we're accustomed to constant to having our palates be constantly entertained in a really extreme way that none of our ancestors, you know, for the last thousands or millions of years, hardly any of them would have experienced. And so it's, it's tough to give that up if you're used to it. But the, what I tell people is you want to eat simple, satisfying food. So you can't eat something that you don't enjoy at all. You want to enjoy it. You want it to feel satisfying. But yeah, if you're if you're if you're chasing the dragon every day, <laughs> you know, on your plate, it's not a good thing health wise. Yeah. Not a good thing weight wise. Yeah. So we're coming up on time. But uh, what else? Before we go, what are some other things that we should know about our brains, uh, where we can hopefully step in and, and alter our behavior in a positive way, just a little bit. Yeah, I think one of the things that a lot of people don't realize and I think is really, really important is that the brain actually regulates body fatness. Mm-hmm. And this is this is something that I've most of my personal research is or was on. And the basically you have a system in the brain that detects how much fat you have and it doesn't it tries to keep you from losing that fat. So this is true whether you're lean or obese. It's tough to lose weight and it's even harder to, to maintain that weight. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is something that anybody will tell you who's tried to lose weight and it's something you see in the studies. Um, weight regain is the rule rather than the exception. And so this is like this, this huge elephant in the room yeah. that people really aren't addressing or thinking about when they're talking about weight management. So I think that it's really critical to to know what you're up against 
and to try to manage it instead of just pretending like it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And so um, understanding that there is a system in the brain that's going to resist weight loss, um, that's a good starting point, and then you can start thinking about how you can manage it. So there are a number of ways to do that, but I'll just, without getting into too much detail, just list a couple of, of strategies that I've focused on. Um, one of them is eating a higher protein diet. Um, that feeds back onto some of the same circuits that regulate body fatness. Mm -hmm. um, one of them is, again, not eating food that is too palatable um, because uh, hyperpalatable foods like some of the ones we've been talking about, they actually also affect that system that regulates your body fatness. There's pretty good evidence to suggest that when you eat a lot of foods like that, your brain kind of lets you plump yourself up in order to allow you to eat these foods that it perceives as extremely desirable. Yeah. Um, and then regulating your sleep appropriately and managing your stress appropriately. That doesn't mean no stress. It just means not constant chronic grind, especially uncontrollable stress is, yeah. is one that you especially want to avoid where you're in a situation where you don't feel like you can control what's what's happening to you. So either if you, if you can not, you know, finding ways to be less stressed or if you can't do that, finding ways to make that stress feel more controllable, right. like you have some way to um, determine your own fate um, yeah. that can help manage the negative consequences of that stress, including overeating, particularly right. in women. Right. I've, I've found, you know, even working with some folks, up close and personal, you just do one little tweak to their morning routine where you, you insert the things that they know that they should do, they know that they love to do, or something that will just set the day in the right direction and giving them that little bit of control, even if it is a super stressful environment, that seems to really help. I know it's helped for me. That's exactly what I do. Like the more out of control my life is, uh, the more I'll try to put in these little moments where I feel like this is exactly what I need to be doing right now. This is what I want to be doing right now. And if you feel that element of control, it, it starts to cross over to other parts of your life. So I think that that's, that's a great point. Before we go, will you tell folks where they can find you, number one, and also a little bit more about your book, The Hungry Brain? Yeah, sure. So I uh, blog at wholehealthsource.org, and uh, my Twitter handle is at source. And my book is called The Hungry Brain and it's coming out on February 7th of 2017. And I'm really excited about it. It's, um, the premise is that nobody wants to overeat mm -hmm. and certainly nobody wants to overeat for 10 or 20 years and uh, develop overweight, obesity, and chronic disease. But most of us do, judging by the statistics. And so where is that disconnect between the conscious, rational parts of our brain that have these wonderful goals about weight management and health, et cetera, and our actual behavior? So what it turns out is that our, our behavior is guided by, to a large extent, by these uh, non-conscious intuitive circuits. And so my book is an exploration of what those circuits are and how they determine our behavior as well as what we can do about it. So it's um, some of the things that we touched on today, some of the brain circuits that I touched on a little bit are things that I focus on in, in much greater depth in my book. 
but it is a book that's written for a general audience. So you don't have to be a, a researcher or a, or a doctor to understand it. I think anyone who's interested in health and, and the brain and uh, body weight should be able to, to understand it. Yeah, fantastic. Well, Stefan, really appreciate the work that you do. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Thanks. My pleasure, Abel. Hey, this is Abel, and I have a quick question for you. Do you want to get in the best shape of your life without giving up your favorite foods? Don't miss your opportunity to get the new Fat-Burning Chef e-cookbook featuring more than 200 delicious recipes from the top paleo chefs in the world. You can get it now for a huge discount at fatburningchef.com. You can type it in from any device. Keep on listening for the details. Meet Jane. Jane knows she's supposed to eat right, but it's been one heck of a long day and she's short on time to cook a healthy, delicious dinner. Jane knows she can get lean by choking down reheated chicken breast and steamed broccoli six times a day for the next three months, but that doesn't sound like very much fun. Fortunately, Jane's in luck because her friend just sent her a collection of over 150 quick and easy recipes that just so happen to keep the pounds off. It's called the Fat-Burning Chef. And through the magic of the interwebs, this handy, interactive, digital cookbook beams straight to you instantly. And since it lives on your iPhone, iPad, Droid, computer, or other gizmo, you'll never be without quick and easy fat-burning meals. But it's not just about mouth-watering recipes. We want to change the world with real food. When you grab the Fat-Burning Chef, you get another copy as a free gift to share with your friends and family. So if you're short on time and want to know what's for dinner tonight, head on over to fatburningchef.com and we'll fix you right up. Bon appetit, Jane. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Fat Burning Man. If you liked it, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, the podcast app, or wherever else you might be listening to or watching this show. Got a second? Please leave me a quick review on iTunes. I always love hearing from you, and if you think someone else might like and benefit from this free show, please take a second to share it with a friend or with a family member. You can get in touch with me on Twitter at FatBurnMan, and Facebook by typing in Abel James or FatBurningMan. Drop me a line anytime. Did you know that I've recorded over 150 episodes of Fat-Burning Man, winning four awards in independent media and hitting number one in more than eight countries? And here's some more good news. You can download and listen to every single episode for free. All you have to do is type in fatburningman.com. I'll give you a second to type it in, fatburningman.com. And you'll get all the show notes in video and audio versions for all the past episodes of Fat-Burning Man. Better yet, enter your best email at fatburningman.com, sign up for my newsletter, and I'll even send you a quick start guide to start burning fat right now and a few of our ridiculously tasty recipes as a special thanks for signing up. Once again, just go to fatburningman.com right now, enter your best email to get your free fat burning download straight to your inbox and make sure that you never miss a show again. This is Abel James signing off. Thanks so much for listening and have a great week. 